While you're taking your seats, I'm going to ask you to stand again. Um, remember how I invited you to stand through the whole service last week? I know, you did not take me seriously. However, I would like to read our passage for us this morning, and I'm asking you to turn to your Bibles, so you're going to have to reach back down, grab your Bibles, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. As you're turning there, first of all, I want to say to Pastor Tom's friends, you old friends, you... Thank you so much for joining us. It is a privilege and honor. He's been talking about you already, and so we're really glad that you're here to join us. And obviously, the Chin clan, we just, uh, I don't know if you know this, Mike Chin was a pastor, he was on the pastoral staff here back in the day. And so, not while I was here, but uh, but yeah, so they're, they're like longtime family members that are just, God has relocated, and yet they're back here with us this morning. So thank you for just blessing us by your presence. As you continue to turn there, I also want to just let you know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are also right now on the run in Northeast India. You probably are aware of what's going on. Actually, the, the young girl that Abby and I have been supporting the last few years, she escaped by cover of night across the river into another state, but the Meite tribe is wreaking havoc. It has settled down a little bit, but not as much as you think it has. And uh, just continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Northeast India, because it is, there, 40, over 45 churches in the area that we know alone have been burned down. Nothing. And many homes and cars and, and, and people have lost their lives, people that we have met and encountered. And so, the enemy is doing a heyday. The enemy is seeking, and he is doing a really good job at killing and destroying. But guess what, brothers and sisters? God is on the move, and he does not waste our suffering. He does not waste this. He is going to use this, and I can't wait to see how the church explodes because of what God does through this. And so, he does want to part, he, want, he invites us to partner with him in this though. And the way in which we get to partner as a church is yes, diligent prayer, persistent prayer. Pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who you do not know right now. But one day you will meet in eternity. Pray that they would be steadfast, they would persevere well. Pray that God would sustain them and pray how God may lead you to take next steps. I love you, honest. You're just going like, how do I find myself in this? What's a church of 70? How can a church of 70 make any kind of impact but God? <laughs> Look what God can do. You should be at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 right now. <laughs> Listen and read along with me, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not only as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so we should complete among you this act of grace. 
But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all inner earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." And in this manner, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, and that there may be fairness as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we just ask as we unpack your word, and as you speak to us through your word and by your spirit, I just pray that you would give us receptive ears. We know that receptive ears and a receptive heart isn't something that just receives, but it, it, it takes a step further. It's a response of obedience. It's a response of action. And so, Father, I guess we ask right now that your spirit would just fill us afresh, that your spirit would convict us where necessary, but encourage and strengthen us where necessary. And we just are so thankful to be gathered as your church gathered here in your name. Bless us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Let me ask you a question, and just to give you a little context of what Paul's talking about, because sometimes if you don't know the context, the way Paul writes can, can be difficult to follow at times. Let me just summarize what Paul's talking about here. The Apostle Paul is talking to the church of Corinth, and he's using the Macedonian churches as a way of uh, illustration of how generous and eager they were to give to the needs uh, that were present in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem at the time. The church of Corinth was very wealthy. They were well-to-do. They had, a, they had, they had much luxury and expenses. And, uh, and, and in light of all that, they were not always the most generous of people either. So there is a kind of an ironic correlation between wealth and generosity, and oftentimes the wealthier you are, you're not always the most generous person, according to what Paul is recognizing here in this Corinthian context. But he's kind of calling them to the floor in a very gentle, shepherding way, and just saying, hey, you've already given lip service to this, now I want to give you opportunity to give to the needs of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It makes me ask a question about myself, and I want to pose to you this morning as I read a passage such as this. Would you consider yourself a generous person? Maybe you have to ask this other question. Would others consider yourself a generous person? And as I was asking myself this, and I'll just put it in a first-person context, Am I the kind of person 
who proactively looks for ways or, or proactively responds to opportunities to be a blessing to others. You know, an observation that we can make from Scripture is that generosity is both a quality and an intentional practice that is true of every healthy disciple of Jesus Christ. It is both a quality as well as an intentional practice that is true of all healthy disciples of Jesus. Now, the question I think we need to ask here because we need to define our terms is, what do we mean by generosity? Because we could all have a certain definition in our mind. We could all have a certain idea of what that might look like. But what is generosity? Or specifically, what is biblical generosity? And what does it mean to live generously? Well, the first thing I think we need to identify is this. Generous living is the practice of blessing others to make their lives better. Generous living is the practice of blessing others to make their lives better. Now, there is a contrast to what we might call charity. Charity is actually the the specific act or specific response to a specific need. When you are charitable, you recognize or are, are aware of a need and you're meeting that specific need that you have become aware of. Generosity, on the other hand, is really more about the motivation that drives one's charity. It's, a desire, it's the desire to make someone's life better without any expectation of return. When I used to work out at the YMCA, uh, because I'm at another place now, but sorry why, but uh, they had this big thing plastered on the wall, and as I'm on the bike kind of warming up and stuff, I couldn't help but see it every single time I was on the bike, and I actually really appreciated the reminder. They had this, this definition of ph- uh, philanthropy. And the definition of philanthropy, according to what was on the wall at the YMCA, was this, the practice of giving in order to help make someone's life better. And I believe much in the same way, biblical generosity seeks to make someone's life better, but goes a step beyond that. It is motivated out of divine love for that person and as well as a biblical view of one's resources. So biblical generosity is motivated out of divine love and from a perspective of biblical finances. I don't know if you've ever read this little book called The Treasure Principle. Anybody ever read that by Randy Alcorn? Uh, you should read it if you have not read it. But The Treasure Principle uh, is really, am I, am I referring to the right one? Yes. The treasure, I've read a lot of Randy Alcorn's books, and so I've got to make sure I get the right book you know, that I'm, that I'm actually giving advertisement to. But um, he, he, he makes a number of different statements, some of which I want to just relay to you very quickly here. It's kind of like a biblical finances 101 First of all, a biblical perspective or a biblical understanding of one's resources, finances, money, however you want to refer to it, is this. God owns everything. Not most things. Not a percentage of things. God owns everything, and we are stewards of his resources. It's imperative that you and I, as as sons and daughters of the king, view our stuff, could I even say our junk, rightly. 
Not that I say all your stuff is junk, mind you, but we need to view our stuff from a biblical perspective. And the Bible teaches us that God owns everything. It belongs to him, and we are stewards of his resources. So what makes biblical generosity biblical then is that Biblical generosity is initiated by the Holy Spirit in you, but it is God meeting the needs of others others through you. It's Spirit-initiated in you, and it is God meeting the the, the needs of others through you. This is the means, this means that when we give, we're not actually giving from our stash, we're giving from God's. We're giving what actually already belongs to Him. And because biblical generosity is spirit-led, it isn't you deciding what to give and to whom to give it to. It is you responding to the prompting of the Spirit of God in you. This is kind of New Testament motivation for our giving. We are responding to what the Spirit of God is prompting us to give from His resources. And this is why we've said this before, but I'll say it as a way of reminder now. We are unapologetic with giving you numerous opportunities to give to. We love giving you opportunity to give. You know why? Because you have much to receive in your generosity. The Bible promises, and we'll go into this a little more detail at the end of the sermon, but the Bible promises to bless you. I'm not talking prosperity gospel blessing. I'm just talking about you are blessed when you give to the things that God initiates in your heart and you are obediently responding to those promptings. Yes, God loves a cheerful giver, but we are only responding to those needs that God has prepared beforehand because as is always, God is always inviting us into his redemptive work. He's the one saying, hey, partner with me. I'm on this glorious, global, redemptive mission here, and I want you to be a part of it. This is a, and, and, and as Pastor Tom would refer to this often, this is what's called the Holy Ghost train ride, right? You jump on, and you're like, hold on a second. How's this all going to look? And by the way, you will have no control. Yonash already told us that, right? You're just stepping out in obedience, and who's, who would have thunk the things that have transpired by one's faithfulness. Another thing that Alcorn identifies in his little book, The Treasure Principle, he says this, God prospers you to raise your standard of giving, not your standard of living. Meaning you have been blessed for the ultimate purpose of being a blessing to others. Another important perspective to ruminate on is that as pilgrims in a foreign land, we live with eternity in mind, meaning that biblical generosity is an eternal investment that lasts. I love what A.W. Tozer says regarding our use of money. Listen to this. Tozer says this, as base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men and women to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. 
whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Think about that. Whatever you give for the sake of Jesus Christ as he leads or prompts you, it is touched with immortality. Whatever you give to the S&P 500, who knows? But whatever you give to Jesus for his redemptive work, it lasts forever and it grows exponentially. Now we might think that a generous person is one who gives lots of money, right? Generous people give lots of money. And while that can kind of be true, I think it's important to understand that also that Scripture tells us that generosity is, is more about sacrifice than it is the size of one's gift. Chip Ingram says it this way. He says, God is more concerned about the size of our sacrifice than the size of our gift. Look at Luke 21, for example. You got the widow's might, right? We don't even really know her name, but we do know this, that we continue to talk about her 2,000 years later. And it wasn't because she had this sizable gift that she got to celebrate. No, she just gave more than anybody else. Two pennies. Pastor Mike gave me a little mite. I have it in my, on my desk. Give everything you have and remember who you are. The fact is, other Pharisees, other religious leaders, they were giving sizable amounts, even making sure people knew how much they were giving. And she, what she dropped in probably didn't even make a noise. And yet Jesus says, this woman has given more than anyone else. The point is, generous living is, is a divinely led practice of blessing others in a way that makes their life better. Now, what inspires us to live like this? What motivates you and I to live our lives for the purpose of being a blessing to other people? Well, obviously, we already talked about it's the spirit that prompts us or initiates this act of generosity, but we also see that living generously flows from having received generously. Living generously flows from having received generously. Look look at verses 1 through 4 again of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, how Paul praises the, the churches in Macedonia. He says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches of Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it out of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. IBC family, when was the last time you begged and begged again and again to give? I don't say that as a way of guilt, mind you. I'm sobered by this. I'm asking this this early this morning while it's still kind of dark out. I'm laying there. I'm like, have I ever begged to give? And yet this is what the Macedonian believers are doing. What gives? What compels someone to have this kind of frame of mind or this kind of eagerness to give? It's because they're overwhelmed with gratitude by what they've already received. 
You see, the Macedonian believers, they knew what they had already received by the grace of God. In other words, they didn't become old, calloused Christians. They were like young children, still just eating up the fact that God had saved him through his son, Jesus Christ. And it was out of that gratitude and out of that just overwhelming sense of joy, the fruit of gratitude is eager generosity. You see this in Acts chapter 2 as well. Everyone gave as others had need. They knew what they had, been, what they had received, and in turn, they gave graciously. That's the transforming power of the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's someone who has not wandered away from the richness of God's mercy and grace in your life. I think much like the Macedonian church, you and I have been the recipients of God's blessing. Some of you have been blessed you know, financially uh, with extreme wealth, and that's amazing, but all of us have been blessed eternally. And because all of us have, are on the receiving end of having been blessed, God invites us. He beckons us. He implores us. He gives us opportunity to be a blessing to others, to be generous just as he's been generous with us, to be charitable for those in need, to be hospitable with those in need. I think it's important to, to remember, however, the right perspective in this because much like the disciples were thinking when Jesus says, why don't you go ahead and feed all these people? And they're going like, we're only, we only see our limitations, and this is why it's important that we understand, if God makes you aware of a particular need, your response is, I don't have enough, so therefore I'm off the hook, right? That's not our response. No, our response is, God, you've made me aware of this particular need for a particular reason. I don't know what that is exactly, but I'm seeking you right now. What do you want me to do? That's it. That's why you can give guilt-free and you cannot give guilt-free because you are only called to do what the Spirit of God has prompted you to do. And perhaps some of you are called to give financially and some of you are not. And perhaps some of you are called to give in other ways and some of you are not. The important thing is that as followers of Jesus Christ, that whatever we are aware of, that we, only, or we are only responding to what God is calling us to do. And knowing full well that if he calls us to do something, he is also the one who will provide the means to meet the need. Now you might think, well, he'll provide the means because it's all surplus. I don't see that in Scripture too often. I see the widow's might, she gave everything. I see the Macedonian church who gave out of their poverty, not out of their riches. And so God may call you to something that may actually require what? Sacrifice. And what is the result? A more fulfilling and blessed life. You know, I, my wife and I constantly think back. I mean, we have pictures of our triplets all over our house, you know, as any good parent might. And, um, and we still are kind of ogled and boggled and dumbfounded in a good way by how richly blessed we were by you. You know, when we first got the news that we were having three more kids all at once, 
It was like, huh. This isn't even funny, God. You're supposed to have a sense of humor. Like, what, what, what is this all about? What are you really trying to do? Obviously, there's a lot of things in our heart that need triplet power to get out, you know? And he's you know, eradicating that from our lives. But the fact is, you were incredible. And it was so fun to brag to, like, the Swedish hospital staff, nurses, doctors, when they're like, hey, because they're always like, do you have enough help? We, haven't, we, we don't even, we have so much help, we don't know what to do with it. I mean, that big fat blue van that's sitting out in the parking lot right over there, the Baconator, you made that possible. Yeah, it was great. No, it was, it was incredible. I remember sitting when Abby got her first ultrasound, we found that we're triplets, so we're like, the first thought of my mouth, out of my mouth was, our car is way too small. <laughs> and you stepped up and you said, you know what? We're going to make it bigger. And some of you came over and did our laundry, and some of you made, many of you made meals. Many of you even donated breast milk, and, and you cleaned and gave us gift cards. And you just, I mean, you took the kids on play dates. It was just like one after another, and we didn't even know what our needs were. It was just like, and then some of you were just like, just let us know. We're, re- we're, we're a phone call away. And so you're like, I don't know. And as it came up, you just responded to it. It was like, what just happened? And we're still five years later reveling in God's goodness. All our life, he has been what? Faithful. All our lives, he's been so, so good. We also learned a lot, actually, by being on the receiving end of your generosity. And this is difficult for all. We just were selling some stuff on uh, Facebook Marketplace yesterday, and uh, I got a chance to talk to a guy who was um, buying some of our stuff and uh, asking him where he was at spiritually. And maybe he's in here right now. I don't know. So I invited him to church. Um, but, uh, you know, it just kind of came up. He's just like, man, it's really hard to be, I'd like to help, but I don't like to be on the receiving end of help. Anybody reckon, relate to that at all? We all like to be the one giving, right? But to be on the needy end, ooh, that's kind of uncomfortable. We were on the needy end. But here's some things that we learned. First of all, we did, we were reminded over and again that God continues to take care of our needs. Not always our wants, but definitely our needs. We also learned from many of you that your generosity toward us was actually a blessing to you. In other words, if we would have said no because we felt bad, we would have been doing you a disservice. It sounds crazy to think like that, but we would have been doing you a disservice by saying no because of our own pride. We also learned that you, uh, you know, what I was going to say was just like, we thought sometimes that we were an inconvenient to you, an inconvenience, and we didn't want to be an inconvenience. We didn't want to be in the limelight, so to speak. And yet that was just our own pride getting in the way. And when we kind of died to those things, you, you just ran in eagerly, like the Macedonian church And today, we just continue to go, Lord, wow, thank you. You know, one of the mantras we have here at IBC, and we love reminding you all the time, is the body takes care of the body. The body takes care of the body. And you are a living example of living that out. It's in our mission statement. We make disciples by serving one another intentionally. It is in our intentional service, it's in our intentional generosity toward one another that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that kind of brings us to our third point here this morning. Generous living reflects the gospel of Jesus. You know, I read a story about a, a, a missionary who was coming off. He was, in the, he was in the 1940s. He's coming out of the mission field for a period of time. And uh, this missionary, uh, he was in harbor kind of waiting to take a boat across the water back home into the United States. And while he was waiting there, he noticed a whole group of refugees that were kind of like basically kind of hanging out in this warehouse, had no place to go. And they weren't believers. And he noticed them. And he just, he went up to them and it was around Christmas time. And he says, Merry Christmas. And they says, we're not Christians. We don't believe in Christmas. He says, that's okay. Merry Christmas. And then he goes on to say, hey, what would you like for Christmas? And they just said, remember, we're not Christians. We don't believe in Christmas. Thank you, but no thank you. And he says, that's nice. I love the persistence. What would you like for Christmas? Finally, they gave in and said, you know, we've got, they actually had this certain treat that they were really fond of. And he says, that's great. He sold his ticket to go back home and lavish them with these, these, these food items and bless them and said, Merry Christmas. Eventually, he did arrive home, got another ticket apparently, and uh, he was speaking to some students in a class that he was teaching and relating the story. And one of the students just said, Sir, why did you do this for them? I mean, they were not even Christians. They don't even believe in the name of Jesus. And his response I believe is very apropos. He says, I know, but I do. I know they don't, but I do. Why in the world would we give $74,000 to people halfway around the world that we've never met, that we may never meet, that we got to meet one right now? Why in the world would we do that? Because we know Jesus. Why in the world would we give almost $8,000 for pies, <laughs> among other things? Yeah. By the way, the youth to student ministry trip is fully funded because of you. Yeah. It's incredible. It's because you know Jesus. It's because, you, because the love of Christ compels you. I love the words of Jesus out of John chapter 13 when he says this, by this, what is this? All the world will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Or listen to Matthew 25, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. You see, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to abide in Jesus and to follow his example. We just already finished the, 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 the epistle of 1 John together not too long ago. And John says this in 1 John 2, he says, Whoever claims to live in him, that is Jesus, must live as Jesus did. In 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You know, there's a, one of the classes I took when I did my doctoral studies was by Paul Miller. He wrote A Praying Life, among other things and stuff, and he has a ministry called See Jesus Ministries. And Paul Miller, um, I don't know if it was unique to him or not, but this is where, how I remember it, but he basically said the Christian life is a life that follows the example of Jesus. And I, for, I apologize if this isn't coming up very clear because 
I just found out this morning it wasn't. But um, you can kind of get a, a hint of it, right? It's called the J-curve. The J-curve is basically Jesus died and Jesus rose. And then as people that are following his example, we die and then we rise. But the unique thing about the J-curve kind of ment- uh, perspective or understanding is this. We are following the example of Jesus Christ. And here's the, here's the benefit, here's the blessing that comes from that. Why in the world would we want to die? Why in the world would you and I lay down our lives for one another? Because look at the promise, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Or in our passage that we read this morning in verse 9, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he would make you rich. Here's the point. Jesus came and he willingly died so that we might live. And then he tells us, now I want you to die so that it would foster life in other people. I want you to have the mindset, the willingness to lay down your life so that it might foster life for other people. Jesus comes and he dies and it brings life to us. Then he says, now you follow my example, you die and it will result in life for other people. Jesus, I am so grateful that we have the opportunity to to draw focus, to not part far or too long without coming back to the cross. Even as I was reading earlier, Father, just we celebrate the resurrection as we should as Christians. Because that guarantees our eternal salvation. But what is most profound is not that Jesus could rise from the dead. What is most profound is that Jesus would die. That God, the creator of life, the very definition of life would die. But yet you did so out of love. And you willingly lay down your life. No greater love is this than one who lays down his life for his friends. So Jesus, we celebrate you now. We celebrate because of what you have accomplished on the cross. We stand forgiven. We stand free. We we are here full of hope. Knowing that when we draw our last breath, it is the beginning of our glorious eternity with you. You made it all possible and we celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen. The J-curve is Jesus saying, I gave, you, I gave everything. And the result or benefit is that you, we win, we benefit. And then Jesus says, now I want you to give everything. And the result is that it would foster and usher in divine life in the lives of other people. Biblical generosity, brothers and sisters, is giving sacrificially for the sake of others so that they can be blessed. 
And in doing so, we reflect the gospel of Jesus by our actions. But I got one final point I want to make here, and that is this. Generous living is just wise living. Generous living is wise living. It's the, it is a more joy-filled life. It is a more satisfying and fulfilling way to live. Listen to Acts 20, verse 35. Jesus is quoted, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Look at Malachi chapter 3. The prophet Malachi says this, or God says this to the prophet Malachi. He says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouses so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open up the windows of heavens for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall far from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. All the nations will call on you, will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You see, Scripture tells us that we are blessed when we are generous. It also tells us that generosity is an investment that you can make. It's really the best investment you can make. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6? Don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths and eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal them. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal Wherever your treasure is, there your desires of your heart will be also. Abby and I just went to this little sale yesterday because we like the garage sale. Um, we don't need more stuff. We're trying to purge stuff, but we ended up ourselves at a garage sale. Um, but there's always the sobering reminder about our stuff. We went to this place, big farm, in its heyday, multiple outbuildings, huge barn, huge building, huge house, everything else. And the dad is now in memory care, and the mother is in a very small place because she literally can't hardly move. And that's not a knock at all. It's just the re- sobering reality of how life tends to play out. You have a lot, and then pretty soon you can't take care of it anymore, and guess where it goes? Either into the landfill or into the hands of other people. We have such a short, short time of possession with our stuff because it's not ours anyways. And the question is, how do we invest this for eternity? Generous living is really the best, is the most, uh, it really has the best immediate return. I'm actually gonna just kind of skip ahead here. Proverbs 11 says this, Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper, but those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Or look at Proverbs 19, verse 17. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and he is the one who will repay you. Try to get up here. Listen to Proverbs, or 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Proverbs 21, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Here's what I'm getting at is this. We could go through passage after passage, scripture after scripture, verse after verse, and here's the point. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
You see, a, the more, a more fulfilling life, Jesus says, is when we think of our stuff and view our stuff as a way of, Lord, what do you want to do with this for your glory, for your kingdom, to be a blessing to other people? And when we live like that, we are promised, not just encouraged, we are promised that it is a more fulfilling and joy-filled life. You know, this last weekend, I say this in closing, this last weekend, uh, or past weekend, I did um, Ed Beretta's memorial. And I'll be honest with you, like, every memorial is impacting in its own way, but those of you who knew Ed, he was a pretty, at least in my encounters with him, kind of quiet, very unassuming guy. I had no idea that he was part of the development team for the Apollo 11 rocket ship, and, uh, and he was a chemical engineer and then basically decided, hey, I'm going to be a medical doctor now and went off to school and became a medical doctor and, and literally saved multiple small towns. I'm like, Ed? What? How did I not know this? He never talked about himself. But everybody else did. Everybody else talked about him. And what impacted me most about Ed Beretta's life was, look how they're remembering him. This is incredible. And not that Ed was about Ed or he wanted some sort of long open eulogy said about him. He didn't do it for that. But it did make me ask a question. I wonder what people would say at my memorial. What would people say about me in remembrance of me, right? I don't know. I wonder if I'll be described as a generous person. I wonder if I'll be depicted as one who truly loved his neighbor? Or will I be known as someone who cared more about my own affairs than the affairs of anyone else? The fact is, the generosity, I think it is your generosity that is a litmus test to our spiritual maturity or our spiritual health. Your generosity is a reflection of your love for God and for others. Mm-hmm. 